0: It's the gospel, isn't it? Good news. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Lamb of God. Takes away the sin of the world. Takes away your sin and mine. And I I wanted to also just quickly wanted to remind us about the hymn sing coming up that we can sing praises to the Lord. It's uh, the day after Thanksgiving. So please come join us um, and bring your friends as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and our Father, thank you for your son who came, who is your lamb, who takes away the sin of the world and who has ushered in a new covenant. Lord, I pray that today that you'll help us have longing hearts to experience more about what that means. And I pray, Father, that you'll help us now. By your spirit, give us understanding of this incredible Passage, this incredible mindset, this incredible concept called the New Covenant. And we'll give you thanks and praise for what you'll do with it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2020, I don't know about you, but for me, it has been a year that I would rather pretend it never happened. Right. Yeah, you think about all the things that have happened, especially, you know, we've rehashed all this so much since March since COVID-19 became a big thing for all of us. You know, it's uh, lockdowns and spiking infections and on and on and on. And now we're in round two, right? Then came intense social unrest between members of the one race, as in the human race. You know, people with different, differing shades of melanin are literally, literally at each other's throats. Does this bother you to hear And where are we now? Election cycle, 2020. Used to be election day. Now it's election cycle, right? Some say that we have a president elect. No, we don't. Not yet. See, not till all electoral votes have been cast and identified and certified. Only then will the race have been called. And so we wait, like we do every four years Right, anticipating a peaceful transfer of power or a continuation of the current administration. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to enter into what we call the holiday season. It's good stuff, right? Think about Thanksgiving. Think about Christmas and New Year. And hopefully we'll be able to push pause on all the upheaval that's been going on in our lives just for a couple of days. Now, in our family, part of our tradition has been to break out the different movies, you know, the holidays. You know, and then recently, you know, we've added the nativity story to our list. And if you haven't seen the nativity story, recommend it highly. It's wonderful. It's a great story about Christ, obviously. But for fun, often on Thanksgiving night, we break out the Christmas story. You know Christmas story, right? You shoot your eye out, but... And one of the absolute, though, intense, dramatic scenes in the Christmas story is the Scott Farkas affair. Now, Scott Farkas and his crummy little toady have been terrorizing our beloved Ralphie and his friends probably forever, which probably seems like forever to them in the movie. But then one day it happened. Mono imano, Just Scott Farkas and Ralphie. And Ralphie had no choice. He just had to defend himself. And like an animal just released out of his cage, Ralphie snapped. And shall we say, Ralphie successfully defended himself. That's why it was known as a Scott Farkas affair. But this morning, I'm not saying that the Apostle Paul resorted to violence. Far from it, unless we are trying to say that violence was done against the enemy in the spiritual realm but in our passage for today 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 to 18 Paul begins to unpack his defense against the false teachers who infiltrated the church in Corinth now for all the problems that they had and that all the problems that Paul called them out for in first in 1 Corinthians as we remember as we studied those those things the last thing that the Corinthians needed was to have a false teaching introduced into their church. Now, as we'll see today, these false teachers did not introduce good news at all. They thought they did, but it wasn't. See, their teaching was far worse than can be even imagined. For what they did was to take something that God intended as a way of glorifying himself, and these false teachers perverted it. They turn things completely around and effectively use these things as weapons against what really was the good news. And what is the good news? What was it and what is it? It is literally the outworking of what the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, did on behalf of fallen sinners. Now, we know the gospel, don't we? King Jesus, perfect, sinless, ruler of the nations and owner of the earth, out of his love for us, Paid the price for sin that we owe a holy God. His sacrificial death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead makes it possible for sinners to be shielded from the wrath of God to come. And one day King Jesus will return to rule and to reign. And all people from Adam on down will stand before Him one day and give an account of themselves to Him. Tragically, He will tell many, depart from me, I never knew you, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Hmm. But graciously and mercifully, he will tell many others, his sheep, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm longing for that day. But that's the gospel, the glorious good news. But horrifically. In Paul's words, these false teachers proclaim the not-so-good news, as he described it, a zealousness for God, but not according to knowledge. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they seek to establish their own righteousness, not submitting to God's righteousness, as Paul describes it in Romans 10. But how does one submit to God's righteousness? Repentance from sin and placing their faith in Christ. Again, Paul tells us in Romans 10:4, "For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." And so what is Paul's defense against these false teachers? What is the outworking of the glorious good news of Christ on the cross and his resurrection? We're going to find out these things in our passage today. And truly, it is glorious. And so if you don't have it out yet, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Verses 1 to 18 is what we're going to be talking about today. And so today I want to to give us what I would call a more comprehensive view, a picture of what Paul is talking about rather than just a verse-by-verse explanation of this chapter. Certainly the passage that we're going to be talking about today is the foundation upon which we we will build the truth of the New Covenant. Now Paul does not explain the New Covenant here, some of the details. But he does give us the incredible outworking of the new covenant and how it is far superior to what the false teachers were proclaiming was good news and what they were trying to seduce the Corinthian church to believe. And what I want to simply do is have us read the passage and break it up in little chunks here with only a few comments to offer a little context. And then I want to springboard, as it were, into what Paul was talking about regarding the new covenant. And truly, it is glorious. And then we're going to see how powerful and glorious the new covenant is for those who know Christ as their Lord and Savior. So we've got a lot to cover, so let's get going. Let's read the first six chapters of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to begin with. And Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what is Paul talking about here? What is going on here? Well, primarily, Paul was answering the charge of the false teachers and their bogus claim that Paul somehow needed to produce a letter of recommendation to the Corinthians to show that his message was legit. Now, we're familiar with this kind of thing. It's called credentials. Now, we're familiar with this, aren't we? In any line of work, if we're unsure about who the person is, we ask them for verification. You know, when, when my Internet gets broken and I call somebody in to come and fix it, what do they do? They knock on my door and they show me their badge. That's credentials. Well, it was much the same way in the first century. Letters to vouch for others to say, he is legit. You can trust this guy. That was very common back then. And Paul himself wrote these kind of letters as well. And Paul is telling the Corinthians in so many words. You're kidding, right? <laughs> You actually believe these guys when they tell you that I need to give you a letter of recommendation? Really? So what's Paul's answer here? You, Corinthians, are our letter. We don't need some parchment with letters on it to let you know that our message is legitimate. We gave you the truth. And how do we know this? How does anybody know that we gave you the truth? The answer is the profound changes that have taken place in your lives. Changes that can only come about because Christ wrote his letter on your hearts. See, the Lord Jesus has taken your hearts of stone, Paul continues basically, and he remade them. He's given you hearts of flesh, literally fleshly hearts in verse 3. Hearts that are alive and can respond to God's ways. Hearts that could consistently say, yes, Lord, and not hearts of stone that cannot respond. This is their reality. This is what happened in the Corinthians' lives. And what Paul is accusing the false teachers of is that they were trying to write their not-so-good news on, quote-unquote, tables of stone. Their false gospel does not really touch the inner person at all. See, it is in, it is in effect what we would call something like... Behavior modification and religious identity. See, merely adhering to rules of religious matters and all those kinds of things, just following the rules because it's right is what Paul is calling out of these false false teachers. That's why he's chiding them. Mere behavior modification does not change a heart. God's life by His Spirit does. It reminds me of a battle. Between the little kid and his mom as they were in the car driving down the road. And the kid was in the front seat. And this is the days before seat belts became mandatory and child seats were around. Now, you young folks, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but trust me, there was a time, right? <laughs> seat belts, there was time, seat belts weren't weren't mandatory. They were optional. Car seats were non existent. Well, mom was driving down the road. Three-year-old Junior was sitting or standing right next to her in the front seat. And mom said, Junior, sit down. No. Junior, sit down. Over and over again, this little argument took place. And then finally, mom comes over and gives him a little smack in the legs. That too was legal back then. (laughs) And tearfully, Junior sat down. And as he sat down, he said this to his mom. He says, I'm sitting down on the outside but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> That's right. But the point is simply this. It is simply this. We can have behavior modification for any number of reasons, but what God is after is behavior modification in our lives as well. However, it is out of gratitude and love that we have for what Christ has done for us. Indeed, as the Lord told his people in John 1421, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. In first John four nineteen, he says, We love. We love him, we love others. Why? Because he first loved us. It's a love relationship. That's what is to be our motivation. But the false teachers then and now seek to impose their message from the outside in. And Paul rightly observes that the letter, as in the recommendation letter that they were seeking from the Corinthian Christians to help them expand their influence, that letter kills. It kills because the fake teachers promote mere religion. The letter recommendation validates their religion, their deadness, and they seek to write Mere religious observance on tables of stone, upon unregenerate hearts. But Paul's message is that Christ's letter is written on the hearts of Christians by the Spirit. And what happens here? This brings change to the very deepest part of the being of a Christian. And it works its way out from the inside out for all to see. See, everything about the center of the life of a Christian has changed. If you know Christ, you know what I'm talking about. Christians have a changed perspective on how they live their lives. Isn't that true? Instead of seeking to collect, for example, all the status symbols in life, the things that everybody else goes after to make them happy, the Christian doesn't do that unless you're walking in disobedience. They realize that money and fame and political and social power does not satisfy them. Only Jesus, with their close fellowship with him and with God's people, is what satisfies them. Christians, having the letter of Christ written on their hearts, live for the life to come. See, they understand the truth of Christ saying, because I live, you shall live also. They understand and prepare themselves for the day when they will stand before the Lord and give an account of their lives to him, where they long to hear, well done, Good and faithful servant. And in this life, they seek to put others' needs ahead of their own. Even as Paul told the Philippians, he says, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. People who have Christ's letter written on their hearts long to faithfully live that way. Isn't that true? Now, do we live this way perfectly? Go like this. We don't. But do we want to? Do we want to live this way? Absolutely. Such is the change that happens when Christ writes his letter on human hearts. And he does this through the new covenant. So let me briefly point out before we leave this section that Paul declares loud and clear that God has made him sufficient. Him and his his friends qualified. Qualified actually qualified to give out this gospel, to serve up the new covenant, to serve it up to humanity in general and to the Corinthians in particular. And if God qualified Paul and his friends to give the new covenant, then by process of elimination, false teachers and their teaching is what? It's disqualified. They in their ways are insufficient to change the lives of people. I was a Messianic Jew, Paul knew Scripture. He was very familiar with Jeremiah's promise that God was going to give his people a new covenant. As we're going to see, the new covenant is a thing of life, not mere religious observance. It begins with Christ, by his Spirit, writing his letter on the human heart. And we will see what amazing things happen to those who are part of the new covenant experience. And we're going to see that in a little bit. But first, Paul is going to get to the heart of what happens to those who buy into what the false teachers are selling. So let's go to verses 7 to 15. And Paul writes, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, Old Covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it in the New Covenant. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold like Moses who put a veil on his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. There's a lot of stuff in here. Now, these verses, though, he now is referring to the history of his people in a certain place, certain time at Mount Sinai when God was giving the law to his people, the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this is recorded in Exodus 19 to 34. So we're going to go to Exodus 19 to 34, all these chapters, and read them together. I don't think so. Not today. We're not going to do that. But this is what we're talking about. God told the people to get ready. He was going to speak to them. Imagine that if you were there. Three months and three days after the Lord delivered them with an overpowering display of his deliverance from out of Egypt and the care he had for his people, the Lord met with them. On that day, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord thundered from the mountain the Ten Commandments to the people, and it scared the people half to death. Yeah, I think I would be scared. And this is how they responded in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Hmm. Moses said, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of, of him may be before you, that you may not sin." The fear of God prevents us from sinning. Isn't that true? God thundered to the people what he wanted of them. The Ten Commandments. Then took Moses about 40 days to be in the presence of God so that Moses could understand and write down some of these things that the Lord wanted them to, to, to know about how to apply the Ten Commandments. And God gave Moses what we call the Mosaic Covenant, otherwise known as the Old Covenant. But how quickly did the fear of God leave the people? How quickly did they forget? It took them six weeks before they said to Aaron, the one in charge, the one that, that was charged to take care of the people while Moses was on the mountain, get, getting from God how to live their lives as covenant people. And they said to, to Aaron, up, make us God's who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Well, guess what was going on on the mountain? They knew where he was. And we know the rest of the sordid story, don't we? It cost the people greatly. 3,000 lives were lost because of God's judgment. High price to pay for sin. Don't you think? Way to be loyal to the covenant, fellas. That's what we can say. Now, Paul describes this whole story of the old covenant in various ways. He calls this episode a ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, a ministry of condemnation and of what was being brought to an end. But why would Paul describe the covenant that God made with his people through Moses this way? The simple answer is that it, merely keeping the law of Moses does not give a person life. It does a great job of putting God's holy standards on display. and though the law of Moses is a glorious thing, there is an end point. Though God's law serves as amazing pointers toward what God wants of His people, they are still pointers nonetheless. See something far greater. Than that God has in mind the mere behavior modification of his people. Ever notice how when tiny kids understand what gift-giving is all about and you give them a gift, what do they do with it? Tiny kids now. They rip it open, and what do they play with? The box, right? You, you paid a whole lot of money for that toy, but they end up playing with the box, right? Now, you know how to save a lot of money when during Christmas time with a little kid? <laughs> just do the box and put the paper on it. They're going to just play with that. See, the sweet little kid does not know there's nothing in there, right? But I wouldn't recommend it for older kids. Right? Well, consider the temporary nature of the fading glory, the covenant of Moses to be like little kids in wrapping paper. See, the Torah, the teaching of God's ways was not an end in of itself, but it was coming to an end. And the end was Christ. When he came on the scene, all things pointed to Christ. He did and said things only Messiahs could say and do. At the end of his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension all served to show how glorious God's ways are in Christ. For all things in the old covenant put the Messiah on display. But in the midst of the rebellion and the death, there was a shining light. And Moses was in the center of this. See, after the people did what they did with the golden calf thing, and after about 3,000 people lost their lives because God killed them in judgment, Moses developed a holy glow by being in the presence of Almighty God. Imagine the contrast here. Imagine being in the presence of God to the degree where your face would literally shine. Nothing special about Moses, but what was going on with Moses? He was in God's presence. In Exodus 34, we find this story. We're not going to read the whole thing, but let me give you a couple of pointers here. In verse 29, Moses had been in God's presence so intently. During the second time he met with the Lord, to give, so that God would give him a second copy of the Ten Commandments because he broke the first ones, right? that his face shone, and he was not even aware of it. And in verse 30, we find that this was a scary thing for the people. Can you imagine having somebody come to you who had been in God's presence and his face is glowing? Yeah, that's pretty scary. But Moses told the people, glowing face and all, to come near to him so he could tell them what God had said. And in verse 33, it says that Moses put a veil on his face. But Moses' face glowed for a while as he continued to meet with the Lord. And we see that in verses 34 and 35. Whenever Moses went in to speak before the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what was commanded by the Lord. And the people would see the face of Moses that his skin was shining. And Moses put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord again. Now, as incredible as a thing this was with Moses and his shining face, that was only a temporary arrangement. Being in the presence of God will cause a face to glow as we see this. But living life in a new covenant will cause a life to change. So let's look much let's look now how much greater Paul's new covenant gospel message is compared to the false teachers so-called good news. Paul calls a new covenant, the ministry of the spirit, far more glorious than the ministry which was being brought to an end. The new covenant is the ministry of righteousness with a far more exceeding glory than that even when Moses experienced, glowing face and all. In verses 10 to 15 of 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says there really is no comparison between what he describes as the old covenant and the new. For the old covenant was being brought to the end, but the new covenant is permanent and it's forever. Moses is a great picture to show the Corinthian church of the effects of the old covenant and one who has bought into that old covenant. See, again, these false teachers, they were, they were peddling this. And Paul was saying, you don't need this. You don't need it. There is a veil, he says, over their heart. Their mind is hardened like a stone. A blockage is preventing them from getting to the Lord. And one might say there was like a, a disconnect between them and God. There was a barrier. And that's what was the Old Covenant was doing. Paul put it this way when he wrote in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 5, he says, They have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. See, the false teachers are very good at helping people to keep up appearances, but there is no heart change. You know any churches like that? You know any leaders like this? See, behavior modification is what they were looking for. Religious identification is what they wanted people to adhere to. The false teachers wanted a greater influence, but the greater influence that they were seeking was just adding more people to their number. They weren't looking for the profound change of souls, which is, I don't know about you, but that's what I really want. But now look at the glorious truth of those who are part of the new covenant in verses 16 to 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. But when one turns to the Lord, he says. The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is now true of those who are, as we call them, saved by grace? The veil between us and God has been taken away. Like Moses who veiled his face but uncovered it when he beheld the Lord, so it is when we turn to Christ and he writes his letter on our hearts. There is now true freedom in Christ, but not freedom to sin. Remember the holiness of God. What happened with them? They were destroyed, 3,000 of them, over this golden calf thing. The freedom we have now is simply that we are freed from serving sin and now free to serve Christ. That's the freedom that we have. And here's another glorious truth. Our faces are unveiled. What happened to Moses when he had an unveiled face? Un- unveiled face? What happened? His face glowed. It glowed. It changed. It became glorious. You know, and not because Moses was glorious. The holiness of God, the glory of God is contagious when a person spends time beholding the glory of the Lord. And as glorious as these things are, there is still a more glorious thing that as we continue to behold the glory of the Lord, we continue to be transformed into the image of Christ. Notice it's a process, though. It's not all at once. It happens gradually over the course of our lives, lifetimes. But the false teachers, they know none of this. There is no transformation of the soul, only behavior modification. There is no Christ-likeness, only religious conformity. There is no freedom of spirit, only deceptive slavishness to what the false teachers dictate to their followers. In other words, do this and you will live. But doing this, whatever it is, does not give life. Repent and believe him does give life. But with that said, let me briefly point out the glorious points of the new covenant that Paul's talking about here. Because there are many people and there are church leaders who actually believe that God's grace means no obedience is necessary to God's commands. Did you know that? There are people who are nationally known leaders who say this. Let me give you a quote by this one particular individual. He says, participants in the New Covenant are not required to obey any of the commandments found in the first part of their Bibles. Imagine. Hmm. And by saying this, though, this man does not seem to understand the first thing about the New Covenant, which is also in the first part of our Bibles. Here's how God laid laid out the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31-34, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. though uh, My covenant, though they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. They committed spiritual adultery with God. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now we could spend the next... Days on this. But let's just look a little bit about this new covenant and the glorious I wills. What is God doing here in this new covenant? First of all, he says, I will make with my chosen, with you, a new covenant. He's going to take the initiative. Now, he's talking here specifically to Judah and Israel, but all of us who know Christ, we're included in this. God's going to make the first move. It's by his grace he does this. Now, we all know there's no way, shape, or form that we deserve this. There's no way, shape, or form that we are worthy of it. But God does it by his grace. I wills number two and three. He says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is what God says about the new covenant. This is what the new covenant is. What does this mean other than God working in the human heart from the inside out? But what will God write on their hearts? Love, right? Uh, Acceptance, you know, radical inclusion, making the world a better place. I'm going to write all of this on their heart, right? No. His law, his Torah, his teaching, his ways, that's what God is going to write on our hearts. It's these things. God's new covenant will not be external to his people. It will be inside. It will be internal. Obviously, this does not mean that God somehow takes a little pen you know, and writes these things on our heart-pumping muscle. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about figurative language, meaning that God's ways become the most important things to us, the most precious, the most valuable thing to us. That's God's ways, and that's what happens in the life of a true Christian. I will, number four, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Notice he says, and I will be their God, not then. In other words, we don't earn it. We don't do these things, and then God does these things. No, it all comes as a beautiful package. The relationship that God wants with his people, these are the things he is doing in inviting us establishing that covenant with us. We have the relationship because he wants to have the relationship with him. I wills number five and six. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. And both of these I wills go hand in hand. Remember, to forgive means, as you saw a couple of weeks ago, forgive means it's a dead issue. It no longer is talked about. Once it becomes brought up and once the transaction is made it never is brought up again it's forgiven and that's what god means when he says i will remember their sins no more has god ever brought up to you in your prayer time hey you remember that sin that you did does god ever do that to us no not at all he forgets he takes it away he no longer remembers it and he no longer deals with it according to our sins according to our lives and how did he do that? Did he do that because he's nice? No. John 1.29, Jesus was told. Jesus was described by John the baptizer this way. He says, look, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, when Jesus died as the Lamb of God, all sin of his people were removed, was removed. All sin was removed. The writer to the Hebrews echoes this as well. Hebrews chapter 10, 12 and 14, he says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down, his work was done. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those being sanctified. Our sins are gone, removed. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He deals with us according to the grace. He deals with us because Christ died for our sins. And so those who are part of the new covenant are by no means exempt from obedience to the law. Why? Because the law, God's ways, His Torah, is in our lives. We want to do these things. It's at the very center of who we are. We delight to do God's ways. And because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we now have the ability and the power to do these things. And so what do we make of these glorious truths of the new covenant Two points. First of all, it's about evangelism and discipleship. Paul told the Corinthians, we are the newsboys, guys. We're delivering to you the letter of Christ to be written on your hearts. God has qualified us to give you the gospel. And the changes taking place in your lives are proof that our ministry has made an eternal difference in your life. So let me ask... As Christians, who is that person who gave you the gospel? Who is he? Who is she? Who was it that delivered that letter of Christ to your heart like a newsboy, a newsgirl? And who is it that you have given the gospel to? See, God commands us to do this. It's not an option. We are to be engaged in evangelism, aren't we? Who have you delivered that letter of Christ to? If you haven't done that at all, let me me suggest that you would begin to pray. Lord, who is this person that I can give the gospel to? Give me opportunities. said before, but it's definitely worth repeating. There's only two things that's going to last forever. We know what they are, don't we? It's the word of God, souls of people. What kind of an eternal investment are you making in the lives of other people? See, everything else is going to stay here, right? If you want to make an internal investment, send it on ahead. And you can do that by engaging in evangelism, proclaiming the good news of the king who died for us and rose again. And then also in discipleship, helping others to be more like Jesus. And again, let me encourage you to come to Pastor Brownbag Bag Lunch as we talk about making disciples today. 60 minutes is what we're asking. Second point of application is this. How grateful are you that the veil that used to cover your heart and your mind has now been taken away? How often do you sit and take time simply before the Lord, gazing on his beauty? When's the last time you did this? If it's not very often, why not? Why not? We get so busy, but we need to take time to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. See, we were created and recreated to do this. Remember how the people could not look at Moses because of the glory on his face. We get the privilege of beholding the Lord anytime we want. When are you going to do this? See, who are you? Who am I? We're pieces of clay, aren't we? But in Christ, we are being transformed into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory into another. This is something no religion, no amount of behavior modification, no amount of religious law-keeping can do. Based on who we are, children of God by repentance of sin and belief in the gospel, we are being transformed because we are members of the glorious new covenant, all because Christ wrote his letter on our hearts. And now we've come full circle. We can find rest for our souls in troubled times. Here's where the Lord tells us in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all you, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, I find it amazing, the more I study, how little originality Jesus had. You ever notice that? What he said, what he did, was in accordance with the Scriptures. The message that he had, the Father had given him. He didn't come up with anything new. And that includes his invitation to find rest for our souls. See what Jesus was doing here? He was quoting a verse. Jeremiah 6.16, here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and what? Find rest for your soul. And so what are these ancient paths? What are these good ways? The Torah, the Torah of God. Walk in his ways. And we can do that as Christians, why? Because the Torah is written on our hearts because we are members of of the glorious new covenant. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. We want to praise you for who you are. We want to thank you for giving us the new covenant. We thank you that the new covenant was instituted during the Last Supper. When, Lord Jesus, you said, this covenant is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, I pray that you'll help all of us too to bask in the glories of the new covenant. Lord, we're not after uh, behavior modification for behavior modification's sake. We are after doing what pleases you because you have written your Torah, your ways upon our hearts. Father, thank you for these things. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we know this is not just religious double talk. We know this is reality. Thank you for giving it to us. And now I pray, Father, as we, as we sing, as we give, I pray, Lord, that we will be able to do this because we are part of the new covenant and because we are grateful for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.